Our passage for this morning is in Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we uh, go through this scripture. We pray that um, out of this we would see the, the miracle of Christ's birth for what it is, not as a, a sign for um, joy of gift-giving or Christmas trees and decorations, but God, you sent your Son to be a Savior. You sent this message to all people. I pray that we would receive it this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So good morning, everyone. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you all. And we're using the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, to wrap up our Stories of the Carol series. The original carol was written by a man named Charles Wesley in 1739. It was originally called A Hymn for Christmas Day. Uh, and this hymn is really sort of a dramatic retelling of the events of Luke 2, 8 through 20 that we just read. And this carol, much like most every other Christmas song, is just drenched in joy and hope. Joyful all you nations rise, join in the triumph of the skies, it says. Christmas just kind of seems like a time for this sort of cheeriness, doesn't it? But does it really hold up to the hype? When I was a kid, I used to get excited about Christmas because it meant presents, right? And so starting around Thanksgiving-ish, um, you know, back when Christmas didn't start until after Thanksgiving, the toy catalog would come from Sears. Um, that used to be a thing. And I would go through with a blue pen and I would mark all of the toys that I wanted to have. I would make sure that everyone in my family who I knew was going to get me a present knew that this was the list that was approved. And as I refined it, I eventually sent my letter off to Santa, making my list of demands. It wasn't the nicest of letter. I wasn't the nicest of child. And the, closest, the closer that we got to Christmas, the farther away Christmas seemed. It was almost like we were never going to get there. And this anticipation was building and building and building. And then it comes. And what would happen is there would be a, a flurry of uh, gifts being opened. There would be paper all over the place, bows, all the boxes and the stuffing pulled out of all of my toys. And, and then the day ends. 
and you wake up the next morning and there's, there's nothing there. In fact, I remember when I was younger, the moment when the excitement of Christmas left my soul. Um, every year, my grandmother's house, my grandma and papa's house was our last stop in the, the family Christmas parade, right? We'd eat lunch around 12.30, and then we opened presents around 1.30, 2 o'clock. At 2 o'clock, when the last present was opened, let me be more clear, my last present was opened, forget everybody else. When my last present was opened around 2 o'clock, that was the moment every year when I just kind of felt empty. It felt um, almost like being let down, because what else is there? The, the moment's coming past. There's nothing else about this. Some of us, some of us may have found ourselves feeling that way this year for less selfish reasons than just you ran out of presence. For some of us, Christmas may have been especially difficult this year for any number of reasons. Maybe you've missed on celebrations with family or you weren't able to observe all of the traditions that have, have brought you happiness over the years because the pandemic has kept you away from loved ones or changed the way you're able to celebrate. Maybe you've struggled with the transition of your classes to a virtual setting in the last semester and um, you've been stressed coming through finals and Christmas is really more of just a chance to unplug than anything else. Or maybe you've experienced hardship this year because you've lost a job. Or maybe you've been battling with stress or depression this Christmas season because you've been isolated and anxious. Whatever the reason, you felt let down this year, like the, the joy and happiness in the Christmas carols is a farce. It's not yours. Why then should we still consider the Christmas season to be a cause for celebration? How can we join in the triumph of the skies like this carol calls us to do? To help answer that question, I want us to consider three things that we find in our passage this morning. I want us to look at the announcement of Jesus' birth, that this announcement is for all people. Then I want to look at the peace that Jesus brings, but this peace is only for some people. And then I want us to look at the hope revealed in the response of the shepherds at the end of the story. So first, the announcement. Remember that we're talking about the arrival of the Messiah, the anointed Christ, through whom God was going to rescue Israel and all of creation. It's made clear throughout the Old Testament that the Christ was not someone merely inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, like King David. He was to be the very Son of God, as King David himself wrote in Psalm 110. Thea did a great job of preaching on this very subject a couple of weeks ago, and if you haven't heard the sermon yet, go check it out when you're done with this one. Now, it certainly looks like God's pulled out all the stops for this, doesn't it? He sends John the Baptist, the first prophet in 400 years. He causes a virgin to conceive and give birth. He puts a new star in the sky to lead the way to Jesus. And he calls a, ho a, ho a, ho a, ho a host of angels to announce the birth. Look again with me at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. What is the glory of the Lord? 
The textbook definition would tell you that the glory of the Lord is an external expression of God's holiness that's best described as a bright light. But as you will find if you are in college now, textbooks tend to miss the mark a little bit from reality. God's holiness is not just a bright light. God's glory accompanies God's revelation of himself to people, and it's terrifying. There's a reason why when the angels appear to people throughout scripture, the people who see them respond in fear. And they say over and over, like it's the first part of their message on purpose, fear not, fear not, fear not. There's a fairly extensive description of the prophet Ezekiel's experience with the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 1. It starts in the beginning of chapter 1 with this array of some objectively terrifying creatures that we learn later in the book are actually cherubim. They're, They're a type of angel that the Bible shares. The cherubim are sort of like a human hippogriff hybrid with a little bit of ox and lion and eagle thrown in just for fun. Their appearance, it says, is like burnished bronze. Above the cherubim in his vision was a vast expanse where the sky had once been. Ezekiel says the expanse was shining like like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And there was the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And then a throne appears in the expanse. Mind you, I haven't said anything about the glory of God yet. When the throne appears, this is how it's described. And above the expanse over the cherubim's heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was a brightness around him, like the appearance that is in the cloud of the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance and likeness of the glory of the Lord." And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Now imagine for a moment that you're a shepherd hanging out with other shepherds on a hillside outside of a small town in the middle of the night. And the glory of the Lord shone around you. Why would God reveal his glory to you? On its surface, it seems like there's no reason for God to show up to a few shepherds working night shift outside of Bethlehem. The shepherds were more than likely, based on where they were, um, tending the sheep that were actually going to be sold for sacrifices at the temple. So they might have been knowledgeable about the scriptures, certainly more pious than your average shepherd, but that doesn't necessarily make them popular. Uh, Some texts of the time tell us that rabbis looked down on shepherds. They believed them to be deceitful and poor keepers of the law. To be fair, a rabbi of this time, his opinion of others may not carry much weight. But there's also a writing from a Jewish philosopher named Philo around the first century. He said that shepherds were known to be, quote, mean and inglorious. And yet God shares this moment with them anyway. 
This isn't really strange at all when you consider the announcement the angel makes, starting in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. See, the fact that God chose this group of men to share the first public announcement of the Messiah is itself part of the announcement. He doesn't send his army of angels to the religious leaders who might think that they have somehow earned by their piety this this presence of the Almighty and this arrival of the Savior. Of course it was sent to me. I'm holy. Look at me. And God doesn't send his glory. He doesn't reveal his glory to Caesar or to the rich, lest they be able to sit back and say to themselves, well, of course an important person like me would get this once-in-a-lifetime moment. No, God sends his angels and shows his glory to some of the most common people around. God's message is delivered to shepherds, almost as if to proclaim that the Messiah had come to serve and save those who were on the fringes. Even the way Jesus came, born in a barn, swaddled in a manger, uh, which is a feeding trough, in case you were having trouble understanding that, seems almost designed to announce to us that God has come to save the lowly. It's impossible to read the Gospels from the birth of Jesus to his death and resurrection and somehow think that Christ is inaccessible to you, no matter what your station is in life. But what makes the news good? Well, for that matter, what would make any news good? Now, let's pretend for a moment that somebody called me right now and said, hey, guess what? Good news. You just won free season tickets to the Gators 2020 basketball season. Now, setting aside for the moment that no one wants season tickets to anything in 2020, that's not exactly good news anyway. See, I'm apparently, unlike every other living, breathing human in the city of Gainesville, I don't really like sports. I'm sorry, I I misspoke. Um, I hate sports. I hate everything about it. I hate paying the money to park. I hate paying the extra money for food. I hate sitting in my seat and watching people yell and scream at other people who are trying their hardest maybe to, to get a little ball into a little hole. I don't care. So if I won season tickets, that wouldn't be good news to me because I don't need season tickets. If I won season tickets, that wouldn't be good news for me. That would be good news for my friends who, despite themselves, love sports. News is only good when it's needed, when it's adding some value, isn't it? So then we have to understand that the gospel, this good news the angels are bringing, it's a two-part message. And it doesn't start with the good part. The first part says, we are in dire need of help. All of creation is marred by sin. And sin isn't just, you have to understand this, sin is not just you saying something that's unkind or doing something that's not nice or having a thought that that you would never utter out loud for fear of shame and regret. Sin is not a wrong action or a wrong thought. It's a wrong state of existence. 
It's a continual state of rebellion against our creator. God's standard is perfection and, and we can't meet it. At the beginning of his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul devotes much of his attention to explaining this concept. He says, in effect, that it doesn't matter if you are a Jew who lives under the law, so you've received knowledge of God, you've grown up with the Holy Scriptures, you've learned the prophets, you've heard the right and wrong. It doesn't matter if you're that person or if you're a Gentile who's never heard of God, who's not living under the law. You are condemned. Your failure to meet God's perfect standard leads to condemnation. Paul then goes on to quote uh, Psalm 14 in, in Romans 5. He says, None are righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one. <laughs> Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, come on, Paul, it's Christmas. No one's righteous. No one's good enough to meet God's standard? No. And you don't need to read or believe the Bible to know this is true, right? Every man, woman, and child has a conscience that, that gives us an innate sense of morality. It leads us to discern right from wrong, even if we ignore it. Francis Schaeffer had this thought experiment um, in, in something he wrote. He said, just, just imagine for a minute that Every baby, when they're born, has an invisible tape recorder fixed around their neck. And this tape recorder only turns on, only starts recording, when you make a moral judgment about someone else. Someone cuts you off in traffic, which happens a lot around here, and, and you say, gosh, who drives like that? Or someone walks in the door that, that you don't really like into you know, school or class. I don't know where people walk to. I don't really hang out with people that much. It's the pandemic. Um, I've forgotten what socializing was like. But somebody walks in and you say to your friend or to yourself, can you believe that person? Did you hear what they said last week? And the tape recorder clicks on. And it does this for your entire life until you die. And you stand before God in judgment. And, and God doesn't judge you based on his law. Instead, he plays the recorder back for you and he says, I'm only going to judge you based on how you hold up against the standard you've seen both set for others. Now, if that happened to you, if you had that recorder around your neck and you're standing before the Lord and he says, I'm only going to judge you based on what you've said other people should or shouldn't do, how are you going to come out? I'm guessing not great. That's Paul's point. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.12, for all have sinned without the law. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Everyone who fails to meet God's standard is condemned. This doesn't mean just the cessation of life, right? The wages of sin is death. We all know that line, I, I guess. But it's not just the end of your life. It's an eternal condemnation. And we are, all of us, me and you and everyone you know, we are all broken and helpless sinners. But we're not hopeless. In Christ, God has provided a Savior to all people. In the midst of our rebellion against God, he has offered peace. But there's a catch. Look again at Luke 2, starting in verse 13. 
It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This doesn't exactly read like a Hallmark Christmas card or that cute year-end letter that you get from your distant cousin who wants you to know what their 2020 was like and their 12 kids. Or maybe you are the family member who sends that letter out. Either way, you don't see in that letter, in that card, Merry Christmas to all of you that we like and buy humbug to the rest of you. But God's peace is not the same as Hallmark's. Peace among those with whom he is pleased, they say. This begs the question then, with whom is God pleased? I'm going to give you the exhaustive list. I'm going to give you a second to pull out your pen and paper. Are you ready for this? Jesus. That's it. That's the list. No one else makes the cut. We see this clearly, not just in the announcement God orchestrates after Jesus' birth, but he says it flat out after Jesus is baptized a little bit later in his life. In Matthew 3, 16 and 17, we're told that uh, as Jesus came out of the water, from being baptized. The heavens were opened up to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. See, since Adam, every human being has carried with him or her the curse of sin. But Jesus is described in the Bible as a new Adam. Where Adam failed to uphold God's standard of perfection, and so now we all carry the curse of sin, Jesus succeeded. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus withdraws to the desert where he's tempted by Satan not once, but three times in the way that Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. Three times, Satan comes to him and says, don't trust what their father in heaven told you. Believe me. Take that glory for yourself. Do it your way. Don't follow God's plan. Don't follow God's will. Don't be subject to him. Be free. And three times, over the course of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting by himself in the desert, Jesus stands up to the temptation. No, I will not take for myself what God has not yet given me. I will trust in the plan of the Lord. I will be obedient to my Father in heaven. And unlike Adam, unlike us, Jesus' life was marked by this kind of obedience, even to the point of death. But here's the hope. Where we are helpless to do anything about our sinful state, God is not helpless. In fact, the entire purpose of the incarnation of the Son of God as the baby Jesus was to serve as the atonement for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. He was a payment for a debt we owed that we could never repay. He made it right. The debt we owed was our life, and Christ gave his instead. Jesus tells us that the way to peace is through him. 
Being fully human, his life was an acceptable substitute for our own. And yet being fully God, his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy the debt of sin that we owed. In John 14, Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He then goes on from from that to expound on his purpose, why he came to earth. He he expounds on his deity, on the Holy Spirit and more. And he, he finishes like this. He actually, in a very rare moment in scripture, he explains everything he just said. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. When Jesus says we'll have trouble in the world, he's telling us that we'll find no peace here, no matter how hard we try. There was never, ever in my wildest dreams, any chance anything I've ever opened on Christmas would bring me the fulfillment I was looking for. There is no chance that that your ability to celebrate Christmas with your family the way you wanted to and seeing your traditions and eating your favorite meals and gathering together with your loved ones, as great and wonderful and beautiful and loving as that is, is ever going to fulfill you. There's no way the right job or the right education or the right partner, nothing this side of glory on this earth is going to meet that need. Whether you're a Christian or not, I'm willing to bet that you've experienced this on some level. There's something, there's something that you want, something that, that you can't quite get, something that you're just certain that if I had that thing, everything would be better. If the pandemic would just end, I would be better. If my job would just pay me more money, I would be better. If I could just have this person in my life, if I could have this experience, if I could own this thing, be loved by that person, then I'll feel complete. But, but let me tell you what will happen when you get that thing. If you haven't experienced this yet, one of three things will happen to you. You will get that thing and you will realize it's not as satisfying as you thought it was going to be. Just like every single time I have craved Chinese food. It never lives up to the standard in my head. Or you get that thing and realize that you now need other things or you need more of that thing. You're not satisfied with what you get. You need more of it. And so then the hunt continues. Or worse still, you get that thing, you get the the partner, you get the job, you get the education, you get whatever it is your wildest dreams have told you that you have to have to be complete. And then you're terrified that you'll lose it. Not one of those scenarios, not one of those outcomes brings peace. There's just nothing in this world that is so completely satisfying that you'll never want for anything again. Why? Because nothing on this earth can 
can fix what's really wrong with you. Your sin has put you at odds with the holy God of the universe. You know why everyone who's ever stood before the Lord, who's ever experienced the glory of the Lord like that, has fallen to their knees, has cried out, I am unworthy? You know why? Because they are. And they feel it. They know that there's nothing on earth that can save them from God's glory, from his wrath when he appears to them. And yet, God proclaims hope for the world as he proclaims the birth of his son. It's through him and only through him that we can be counted among those with whom God is pleased. There is no peace apart from Jesus. And then if you look closely, you'll see that this message to all people about the birth of Christ, it's not just an announcement. Hey, look what happened. It's actually a call to sinners, a plea to sinners to go and see. Go see for yourself. God says, I have sent my son, I have sent your savior to this little town in this little manger. And here's the sign. Why why would the angels give a sign to the shepherds if not to tell them, go look for yourself? If we understand the greatness of our need for Jesus, then I suspect we might respond as the shepherds did. What do they do? Back in Luke 2, verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the shepherds immediately leave. They, they, they accept the invitation. You want us to go look? We're going to go look. Not because they didn't believe the Lord. They did, right? It's clear. They didn't say, well, let's go see if this is true. They're like, let's go see this thing that's been declared to us. And when they went to see Jesus, it changed them. But it's important to note, I think, that it's, it's not their circumstances that change. We see this in verse 20. It says that when they returned, they returned to the sheep. They returned to their menial jobs. They returned to their lowly status. Meeting Jesus did not change their circumstances. And yet, something was different. They couldn't stop sharing this, this news. They, they didn't just sit back and, and go back about their business. They didn't go back to their fields and be like, all right, sheep, come on. No, what does it say? It says that they, they told people what they saw. They come back to the camp glorifying, rejoicing in the Lord. What changed for them? What was it about seeing that baby wrapped in cloth in a feeding trough that changed them? 
Well, their, their hope was now fixed on something greater than their circumstances. They were reminded when they saw the infant Christ, they were reminded that God is not a God of words only, but a God of action. He is faithful to his word, and if he promises to do something, it's as good as done. And so having seen the promised Savior, they had confidence that the brokenness of the world could be mended. The shepherds praised God for revealing this to them, for inviting them to see the Christ. And the same invitation to see and Savior, the see and Savior Jesus Christ as these shepherds did 2,000 years ago, is made available to all of us, even in 2020. If God thought enough of shepherds to make them the first to receive the good news of Christ's birth, then surely that good news is accessible to all. Jesus brings peace from the endless burdens of the world. So if you feel like you're chasing the wind, running after something that you can't quite grasp, if you feel like you're finding nothing but difficulty in this world, if you feel like 2020 has brought you to a serious low point and and a broken Christmas just added insult to injury, don't look to the new year for hope. So back to my original question. Why should we still consider the Christmas season as a cause for celebration? Embrace the invitation to see and savor Jesus Christ, just as the shepherds did. And I can't think of a better closing than the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the hope that we have in Christmas. That this Savior came to us, that he calls us to follow him, He calls us to give our burdens to him, to find rest in him. And it's there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for the offer of peace in the middle of our rebellion. That you sent a savior to us, not because we deserved it, not because we had reached a point where we we brought you to the negotiating table, but because you loved us. God, I pray that as we wrap up 2020 and begin this new year, I pray that, that our hope would be firmly rooted in Christ as our Savior, that we would see the peace offered to us through him, through his promise of rest. God, I pray that he would be salvation to all of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.